0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today's conversation includes content that may be upsetting for some listeners. Hi there. We're continuing our week of Pacific Conversations and today I'm joining you from Port Moresby, the capital of Papua New Guinea. PNG is known as the land of a thousand tribes. The range of cultures and languages here is mind-bending My guest today, Ruth Kisam, grew up with a first-hand experience of her country's diversity. Ruth was born in Enga province in the northern highlands, but each of her six siblings were born in a different province of PNG. That's because Ruth's father was a pastor and the family travelled with him as he did his missionary work across the remote communities of his homeland. When Ruth grew up, she continued her dad's community work in a different way, She helped build schools and airstrips and educated villagers about diseases, particularly HIV. But then, by chance really, Ruth took on a different and very dangerous battle. She became a fierce protector of people accused of sorcery and witchcraft. Beliefs around sorcery have long been a part of life in many areas of Papua New Guinea But recently, accusations of sorcery have been associated with brutal violence. It's mainly women who are targeted, attacked and even killed as witches, the scapegoats for everything from illness to crop failures to rising sea levels. Ruth has been putting her own life at risk to rescue people accused of sorcery and to try and bring their perpetrators to justice. Hi, Ruth. Hi Sarah, thank you for having me. It's such, it's such a pleasure to have you here. As I mentioned, your father was a
1: pastor. How had he been introduced to Christianity? Interestingly, the first white people that came to his village in 1954 were missionaries from Australia and New Zealand. Um, his village is right in the heart of the highlands um, called Lyagam in Anga province. Um, so when he first saw the White people for the first time, it was missionaries who came and he converted. 1954 seems so recent, Ruth. I mean,
0: it's extraordinary. Do you know what the villagers made of these strange missionaries arriving
1: from Australia and New Zealand? There is a lot of stories. Funny stories about them checking to see if um, the clay, they thought it was white clay on the skin would peel off. The clothes that they were wearing, they thought it was pandanus leaves. So they have a lot of funny things um, that happened when the first contact was made. And what was it that
0: led your father to
1: accept what these missionaries preached, do you think? I think a lot of things that um, they did apart from bringing the gospel was community work. They built a little hospital. They started teaching young people, kids to write. But my dad was too old to go to school. So what they taught him was for him to actually be their helper. So he became a teacher's aide. So they taught him how to speak Pidgin, Um, and then he became their translator. And how did the the
0: teachings of Christianity, of the gospel, how do they fit with traditional
1: Engen understandings of the world? Funnily enough, th- there was a lot of similarities. Uh, the Engen culture is part of the Hela tribe. So the Hela people are deeply... They 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 place a lot of a lot on honor. Um, they're deeply loyal. For them, their word is their bond. You have to be truthful at all times. Um and also they sacrifice themselves. Um, they will fight for what they believe in. So when they heard that this person, this God up in heaven, um, sent his son to die because you know, another one had done something wrong. They they could resonate with that because they do that, so it wasn't hard for them to convert when they saw those similarities. Um, and my dad would always say that um, the moment he heard about how God loved that He gave up His Son, it resonated with him because they would do that. They would die for who they believe in and who they love. So there was it was not uh, something different for them. This village where your where your dad grew up, what does it look like? Beautiful. Um, Riverside Village, uh no roads. This is a, a people that actually lived in three different areas. So they live towards the Hela province, um, where they have their hunting grounds and then they have their gardening land, which is about another day's walk to a different area, and then the the riverside place where if there is an enemy um fight or so they could easily escape. But when the missionaries came, they fell in love with the place too as well. So they wanted to stay at the riverside and um my dad gave some portion of his land to for mission work. So after your
0: father became trained himself as, as a, a pastor and went out to, to minister to other communities around PNG, what did that actually involve? Like what sort of work was he doing in these
1: different areas? What do you remember as a kid? Interestingly, our house wasn't our own. So my parents would actually help kids get educated. So kids would use our home and then go to school. Um, parents would actually bring their children off and drop them with us with food so that their kids could go to school. My mom would always tell us that if you don't come home by six, your food will be given to someone else because we always had someone in the house. I never had a room to myself. I would always share my rooms. I never had clothes that would go past six months. I have to share clothes. Um, So I grew up in a home where I knew that what was given to me uh, was not for me alone. I have to share with those that are not able to actually... You know fend for themselves um uh, so it wasn't um it wasn't like I felt that I was in in any way robbed. I felt like I was doing something that I was meant to do um because that was i was that was how I was brought up. My parents always told me that we were privileged um and in in today's times, we probably weren't, but back then we were. We were very privileged. Um, we were missionaries and we would fly in the Missionary Aviation Fellowship plane. We'd fl- fly in planes while the rest of them walked. So that was very privileged. My dad would wear shoes and, and clothes and others didn't. We would wear shoes and clothes. Others didn't. And, but then my parents would always make us feel that what was given to us was meant to be shared. There was no questions about it. Nobody held on to something that we felt that should be shared.
0: What sort of different expectations were there for boys and girls when you were growing up?
1: I think I was favoured more, probably because I'm the middle child and I have five brothers and one sister. But there was, you see, the, the thing about my dad, which I am always so proud of, was the fact that he's a deeply tribal man, a hella man. And according to culture, it's the hella woman that taught her husband how to do cane bridges, how to bend the bow. Um, it's the Hella woman that has helped her husband uh, be the man in front. She's the one that does the hard work. So my father would always remind me of that, that I come from Hella stock. And and because I do, uh, he would always tell me that um, people are going to look at you and think that you're a woman and you're not going to make it. But actually, um, your 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 mother's They taught us how to bend the bow. They taught us how to do cane bridges. And so you come from that stock. And it was my grandfather also that reinforced that in me and would tell me that if people say that you don't know anything, don't say you do. Show them you do. You mentioned the the missionary airplanes. What was special about
0: Wednesday mornings when you were growing up?
1: It's the airstrip. They where markets are held around the airstrip because that's when the plane comes in. And that's when books are in the plane. So the one other thing that I really looked forward to for the Missionary Aviation Fellowship Lending at um, Tari Estrip was the fact that I get to have books. So missionaries in Argon would actually leave books. Um, and I'd just wait with my dad just so that I could get my plastic full books. What sort of books? What do you remember? Alice in Wonderland was the first book that I read. Uh, Alice in Wonderland? Alice in Wonderland, that's,
0: that's a pretty wild start to and English that, literature. Yes,
1: that was the first book that I had and I... And I was in grade three when I could pretty much um, speak better English than everyone else in the class. And I think I, I always stopped English, um, not because I went to uh, an international school or got taught by expert teachers, but simply because of the fact that I loved reading. But the first book that I, I read was the book that my dad gave me, and that was his Bible. So I started off reading the Bible, and I pretty much could recite a lot of. Bible verses. I'm not practicing them though that much, but
0: um, it's there. So you were good at school and and really fluent in in English.
1: What did the community expect of you after finishing school? As a girl child, of course, the first thing what the community wanted uh, was Bride price. What does that mean? Uh, It means marrying into a family um, that is well-connected. So my tribe is that connection. It means marrying someone with stature so that uh my tribe is assured of the fact that should any social obligation come up like bride prices or compensation funeral expenses my husband will be there to help them so those are the expectations that they were having um but my father had a different expectation of me every time he'd look at me and he'd say if you want to get married you can get married if you don't want to get married you don't have to get married, um, and you don't have to do it to please me. That was something that I felt um, gave me the the option to to dream about things that I shouldn't be dreaming about. <laughs> you shouldn't be dreaming about. <laughs> what were you dreaming about? I was dreaming about seeing the world. I was dreaming about getting out there, living my life. Um, it's not that I didn't want to get married. I eventually did, but at forty two. Um, and that's past the ripe age, as far as Bright Price was
0: concerned. You did spend some time uh, at the University of PNG
1: studying law. What happened with that degree, Ruth? That bamboo is still as elusive. <laughs> so I pulled out second year. Um, like I said, I'm the middle child. So my parents tried to be missionaries and just had four kids. And then they... I don't know what happened, and then they had three kids after that, like in rapid succession. I know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, I'm left like the middle one. So I got three older ones, and then three younger ones. And um, my mom fell ill when I was doing my second year. And um, when she did, I, I thought I'd just go home, um, just help out where I can. I'll still come back and complete my degree. So I pulled out of second year law school, went back home, um, looked for some secretarial job with some law firm um, in my hometown and then started helping out with my mom and my dad. But then I lost my mom. And when I lost my mom, I became a surrogate mom. And um, and dad was like, go back to school. You don't have to um, do this. I can do this. But I couldn't. I couldn't go back to school, so I started working. I sent because my, you felt the obligation to yes, care did. for your younger siblings, yes, but in a in a beautiful way. Um, I'm so glad I did because that was my me paying my dues as a daughter,
0: as well as uh, looking after your younger brothers. Who else were you taking care of at oh that stage? Goodness. So my
1: brothers started bringing in other strays like themselves. You know, um, so they would go out and and befriend people that young men that didn't have mothers or came from broken homes or um, they'd always come back and say, but, you know, but we feel sorry for him. And of course, I would feel sorry for them as well. But then I'm like, but we don't have enough to, to take care of them. And dad would be like, it's okay. So we can just do with whatever. So that that's how it began. We lived in a settlement right next to the church. And the settlement had um, all kinds of social problems. Um, so what we did was we started doing, I uh, started doing little programs. Going into sports, using sports as a way of, you know, bring them all in, but then at the same time start talking about how to take care of themselves. I'm having safe sex uh, because HIV was at that time really going high. The church didn't even want me to talk to the youths about um, introduction to HIV and AIDS. They they said they they told me that um, they will not even have a funeral service. So I remember having this fight with my dad, and my dad said, "Okay, we'll have to broach it." you know, in a softer way, that's a gentler way, so they'll accept it. So it it became a really um, sort of contentious point between me and my dad because I wanted him to take it to the church board. Um, Let's promote what Christianity stands for. And it's about love. It's about accepting people that need help. So, and that's what we did. Eventually we did. We got all the um, youth leaders to go through the training. Um, It took a bit of time. And then the church started fully supporting our sports group, going out into the settlements. We started engaging youth, coming together. Um, Were a lot of people
0: ill, a lot of young people affected by the disease in in the Highlands?
1: Yes, and they still are. It's not being talked about as it was before, uh, but it's still an epidemic. Then what
0: happened one day, Ruth, when you brought your dad for a checkup at the hospital in Mount Hagen?
1: So it was in 2013, October. Um, Dad would always have his review at the end of month, every month. So we went up to the hospital, to the heart clinic, and because it was a consultation clinic, you know, all the old men just like him would line up and they would be waiting their turn. So I didn't want to take this space. I allowed him to sit and I stood up and... um, so I was reading stuff on the wall. Me and my, you know, reading is something that we always go hand <laughs> you'll in and you'll read whatever's there. <laughs> yeah, I'll read whatever. <laughs> and so I was reading the morgue attendance notice. You're a true reader if you're reading the morgue attendance notice. <laughs> I'm telling you, yeah. Blame it on the missionaries.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you're there at the hospital and there's just a, a notice board with this notice. And what
1: do you what do your eyes come across? The notice from the the morgue attendant. Uh, and um it was dated 5th of May. 2013 and it had a name list of about six names on it. And um the the notice was um for people to actually collect bodies of their relatives. Um so basically in, in PNG culture, the relatives will always claim the bodies and, and bury them. So this was something that I thought was unique because I usually don't see that. Usually someone would always collect the body and, and bury them, and I was like, oh, this is funny, this is October. And you've got a notice that bought that um, notice that went up back in, in May. And then I saw on the fifth or the sixth um, name uh, was, wasn't a name, but just in pidgin, Meripaya Kukim, woman burnt by fire, uh, burnt woman. But then someone put in, in brackets in pen, which? Sangoma. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, okay, wait a minute. It could be that woman that was tortured, uh, killed back in February. Now this is October of that same year. And and I actually looked at my dad and I spoke in anger and I said, Do you remember that woman that was killed um near the church? So this is, you know, near the um the settlement where we live, but right at the the junction, the church junction. And he said, oh no, the police came by and they asked us to actually contribute money. So we did. I gave some money. So they they collected money from everyone to go and bury the body. And I'm pretty sure they buried her. And I said, okay, let me just try because I saw that there was a phone number there because I I was just curious. I I wanted to know whether she was. And when I called, the morgue attendant said, I think the body is still here because I can't remember releasing the body to anyone, but I'm not really sure where the body is within the morgue.
0: So what was the story that you'd known about this woman? What was her name and what had you heard? What, what was known had happened to her back in, in February of that year?
1: I only know her as Lenieta's wife. I read it on, the, um, on, on Facebook first. It was, you know, it was unreal because this is the community that I was brought up in when we came to Hagen. This was the community that we first settled in. This was the church that my father built, a community that I grew up in. This is my safe, you know, hunting ground. This is the safe place that I grew up in. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, it's my home got desecrated. You know, something so terrible happened in a beautiful place that I never thought would. What had this poor
0: woman been accused of?
1: For three years, this poor woman was accused of everything from Poor sales of chicken, from um, money being lost in homes, from rat infestation, from kids having scabies, from little things that you wouldn't even think, from parents having no water in their homes because um, the the water bottle just broke or something happens and they're like, no, it's not, It's, it's actually witchcraft. And she did it. So it went from those little things because the thing was that she was not from Enga. She's from the Hela province. And she married someone from Enga who was not even her first husband uh, and who's pretty old. Um, Story was that she actually fled a village again because of um, accusations of sorcery. And when she fled a village, uh, she came and she met these older men. And she stayed on with him. So when she did that, people from his um, village or people that were living next to him and, and were telling him that, look, this is a woman that has been accused of sorcery and you're looking after a witch. But she was a very hardworking woman. The moment that she came, she would start doing, you know, little sales like selling bill nut, uh, selling peanuts. She would buy peanuts at main market, come back home, fry them, put them into little plastic, sell them again. And she started making their little house become a home uh, and she had a baby. Um, And the baby was about nine months going 10 months um, when eventually the accusation sort of hit the climax when a child passed away in the community. And And she was blamed. and And she was blamed and she was, there was a mob lynching that went on.
0: You'd heard about this story, it had shocked you particularly as it coming so close to home in a way and then you see this notice at the hospital and put two and two together that this is the body of this poor woman who hasn't been claimed. What did you decide to do?
1: The first thing that came to my mind was um, if it's her then she has to be buried. It's, it's, you, you can't expect a body to be out like this. She has to be buried. The first thing that came to my mind was that if it's her, then I'll bury her like tomorrow. I'll bury her yesterday. So I called up and um, as soon as the morgue attendant told me, um, I think she's here, I said, please, can you make sure if she's there, um, let me know. It took him two days to find the body within the morgue. He called me up and he said, are you the lady that called me regarding the body of the woman that got burnt? And I said, yes, yes. And he said, well, she's here. Are you related to her? And I said um, no, but I'd like to bury her. And he said, Well, it's going to cost you twenty-five thousand kina, because it's nearly a year now. And I said, No, I don't have that money. I am—I'm um, actually looking for twenty-five kina right now. Uh, twenty-five thousand, I don't have. And he said, I thought you were related. And I said, No, I'm not related. I just saw your notice. Um, that's why I reached out to you. And the notice was back in 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 May. It's October now. And he said, okay, you can claim the body, but you'd have to come with the warrant to bury and you have to come with a medical report. It took me three months to get that. So I had to go between the police station and the hospital. And, you know, at one stage I thought, I mean, what's the use? But eventually they, I was able to get both. And um, just a month shy of her first anniversary, we buried her. Tell me about that. What was that burial like? Um, it was actually beautiful a lot of things came into play that day so as soon as we claimed her body um, her perpetrators came to my dad's house and told my dad that I was not allowed to touch the body because I was part of the community and I was already doing community work so according to the Engan culture if you are related to someone that I've killed I will never get any food from you so Ruth cannot be touching that body. Because then because, they couldn't yeah, get food from, yeah, from your family. because then family. Ruth will not be able to actually give us anything anymore. And I am I was already doing community work. I was already seen as a community leader. Uh, I was already involved in, you know, all the the work that I was doing in the community. So my dad said, no, Ruth will do whatever she wants to do. If she wants to touch the body, she will touch the body. Um, and I will not tell her what to do came to the point that one of them told my dad and said, well, if she goes ahead and, and does this, then she also is claiming responsibility for what she's done. Now, that's a heavy, um, sort of a heavy accusation. So my dad said, OK, what I'll do is I'll ask for Ruth's fathers to come down so her tribes tribesmen will come down. And you'll say exactly that. So they'll compensate you for her taking on that responsibility. They'll compensate you for that. So that, according to the Angan culture is you're asking something more. So it now will start, you know, something that could easily turn into an ethnic clash. So as soon as my dad said that, they're like, no, 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 no need to involve your your brothers. Um, But we just wanted to say that. And he said, no, I'll, I'll just tell their fathers to come down. And I'm a pastor. So I am excusing myself from this. Um, She has her own tribes, man. She's got her brothers and her her fathers and her uncles. They'll come down and then you can tell them that since Ruth is taking on this responsibility of burying the body, she's taking on the responsibility of that woman who's actually killed someone. And then we've killed her in retaliation. So you can tell her father's death. It became a, like it nearly blew up. My dad knew it. He was playing it. He knew that it was going to go that way. So when he said that, everyone were like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. She can go ahead and bury the body. Uh, No need to bring your brothers down. No need. But we just, could you please tell Ruth not to touch the body? So of course I didn't touch the body. And the beautiful people from Youth With A Mission, they came down. These young missionaries were like, we'll help you. Um, So we just got pink flowers and pink um, sheets and um, everything pink, uh, wrapped a beautiful body up. Um, And um, my dad and I, we... We got a uh, this beautiful coffin. Um, and then we I went across to the, the Catholic Church and they have this beautiful cemetery at the foot of a hill. And I said, I need a, a place to bury a body. And they that they, charged 400 kina. But when the priest asked me, um, who is this, and when I gave him the background story and he said, Look, I'll give you place here for free. Um, bring it across. So we couldn't bury it at the the main cemetery because I was I was afraid anything could happen. Um, so we brought it across. The youth from my church helped. They dug up the 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 grave. Beautiful setting, very beautiful setting. Um, and then, of course, my father's all his brothers came. Most of them are pastors, so they all came. We prayed, and it was just a collective effort from everyone. Um, soon as we brought the coffin, and when we walked into the cemetery, I'm telling you, it like a miracle, rain came, and rain came straight five minutes straight that was about three different rainbows and within five minutes it was gone and um and it was you know those you don't you don't get to feel those kind of things and you don't get to see those kind of things in every day but you know that something just happened um it was like she was happy that her body was going down and and resting so we put her to rest that day You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: Ruth, tell me about the tradition of sorcery in PNG.
1: How far back in the culture does it go? It goes back to, I think, our existence. Um, Sorcery has always been practised, but it was something that kept the society in balance. You talk about hunting, you talk about fishing, you talk about gardening, you talk about harvest, you talk about rain, uh, you talk about growth, fertility. It was all of that. It was all of that that this is, a, a you know, a people that believed in different sources of, you know, life for them. Uh, some of them believed that there was a certain way in which, you you know, you chant and certain people you honor and certain, you know, animals that you pay rights to and all that. It was all those different things that all came together. And, you know, when the first, um, when the contact was made and colonization Our colonizers recognized that. They recognized that sorcery was part of our culture. So they even allowed for regulating of that through the Sorcery Act of 1973. So we had an act that regulated the practice so that it does not become something that, you know, become contentious. Um, but, But violence was never part of it. Back in the day
0: then, Ruth, would people identify as a sorcerer? Or was it only something you ever accused someone else of being? Or would people own that identity? They they owned that identity.
1: But it was always a man. It was always a male. It was not a female. In some cultures, it's passed on through the female bloodline. But mostly when it came to, you know, someone that was the society or the tribal sorcerer, it was usually a male. And again, violence was never part of it. Violence where you take on the life of another was never part of it. It was if someone's life was taken, it was believed through sorcery. So then you pay back through sorcery. So the lives were taken on, on sorcery. That was the belief that was existing back, back then. But not the physical infliction of violence that is now happening.
0: And how long has that been happening in, in PNG? When did sorcery, accusations of sorcery, start to be met with
1: this terrible violence? About 10 to 15 years ago. 10 to 15 years ago, and I'm yet to able to prove this, but I've been working in this space for the last 10 years. Most of these violence started coming about when the gap in our service provision, when you look at the health started declining in the provinces, health services started going really worse. Infrastructure, having access to those, whether it was roads or bridges, started declining education started declining. When all those services started declining, you had accusations started, of sorcery accusation violence started going up because people were looking to blame someone for not having access to health or education or infrastructure. Um, And it it seemed that there was this correlation that was there. What kinds of people
0: are the ones now usually accused of sorcery. You said in the past it was
1: a role that men had. What's, what's changed about that? Just like um, Lenieta's wife, the ones that are now being accused of sorcery are the ones that do not have male relatives. So it's women who are it's usually accused. It's always women but mostly marginalised women. Not just women are uh, mother of a powerful man, or women that has a lot of male sons or brothers, or a well-connected women, no. Always that woman that either is a widow or a deserted wife or someone that in any society is not seen as an asset but a liability. Because we live in a communal society, um, social obligations would demand that everyone actually will have to co- contribute. But then if, you, if you're seen as someone that has no means of contributing anything and all that, you're easily preyed upon. And these are the kind of women that mostly cop most of the accusations on sorcery.
0: Explain to me the the role of glass men, who they are and what role they play in this new dynamic around sorcery. So
1: the glass men are usually what you would call seers or, you know, yeah, like prophets. Visionaries. Exactly. So... These are the people that can look into the future. The reason why we call them glass men, usually they would get, get a mirror to say that, okay, so I'm able to see. They are the ones that actually does, you know, do the accusation first. They are the ones that would pick out the women in the community to say this is the one, this is the one that did that. But for me to tell you who the person is, this is my price. Oh, so you've got to pay
0: me and then I'll tell so you it's which of these women are, yeah. are responsible. So it's a, quite
1: a business model, Ruth. It is, and and that's the old reason why. Of course, something had to be done about that. And I'm I'm glad to say we've got a glass manette now, uh, a bill that was um, passed in parliament.
0: Is this something that's happening across the many different tribal groups in in PNG? this the violence that is coming with accusations of sorcery?
1: Fortunately, not, uh, but there are pockets of it everywhere. Um, Because in PNG, there's some society that have very deeply entrenched beliefs in sorcery. And because it is so defined, violence is not part of it. But in society like Enga, where I'm from, uh, we never used to have that belief system. Sorcery was never part of our culture. Uh, We do have beliefs in certain entities that we think can do, you know, harm and all that, but not to the point that we would start taking it out and, and torturing women. Um, usually they take everything down to the battlefield and, and they battle it out. That's how the Angan society, the society is. But we've translated that now into now we're actually the leading province in killing women, torturing women on um, on, on accusations of sorcery. But it's not even part, part of our culture.
0: How many women are uh, attacked or, or die from, from these sorts of accusations
1: here? In one instance, there was about nine women that were tortured and five of them died. And that's um, just in one, one, one incident. This is just one instance. Imagine how people are dying from, from heart attack, from complications relating to TB or HIV and AIDS or other diseases, and it's blamed on sorcery. So it's like there's no woman in Papua New Guinea that is safe, especially from these areas that um, are now really starting to perpetuate violence. As you're
0: describing it, it's such a mix of old and new, of, of tradition and, and change in PNG.
1: What role
0: is social media playing
1: in it all? Social media is actually normalizing it. We have a society that is now becoming so, and I would I put this sort of loosely. It's like it's a pornography of violence. People just want to, they are gravitating towards anything that is violent, but they want something that is more gruesome than the last one you showed. Um, I've made it my, sort of my principle, I don't put any of my work up. I've never put any of my work up. Uh, because the first time I started working in this space, I realized something, they would react people would just react to anything you put up and they want something that is more gruesome. They want something that is more violent than the last one you put up. And all they'll do is react on it. And they'll be like, oh, wow, they don't get the message. The message is what we want to tell them is this needs to stop. No, for them is no, okay, it'll stop, but could you show us something else? But on the other hand, um, social media is also raising awareness on it. Thank God we have you know a government that is now uh, starting to actually prioritizing sorcery. I'll be honest with you: for the last seven, eight years, we didn't have any coordination, we didn't have any budget, we didn't have any support, we didn't just nothing. All we had to do was just you know putting ourselves on the line, trying as much as we can. Organization like Papua New Guinea Tribal Foundation. I mean, thank God for organizations like that. Um, they would raise money in Australia, they would raise money in, in, in the US just so that we could be able to um, work here in Papua New Guinea. And that's how we highlighted the issues and then making sure the government recognised it.
0: In terms of your involvement, Ruth, you know, back in in 2013 when you had managed to bury the, the body, this unclaimed body, and give that beautiful and respectful funeral to that woman who'd been so terribly abused what happened next in in terms of your own involvement
1: after the burial of Kepari Leniata i um i started going back to doing the work that i did but i knew that i i couldn't not anymore and that was in 2013 2014 and 15 16 i started working with the government i wherever necessary i would join up and then i i i worked with um Papua New Guinea Tribal Foundation until 2017. So in 2017, um, it was about three in the afternoon, my dad called me up and I was in Port Moresby. Um, He was in Hagen and he said, do you remember the woman we buried? And I said, Lenny wife? And he said, yes. Uh, I said, what about her? And he said, well, they're torturing the daughter right now. And I said, the baby that she left behind? So all I knew when we... Buried her was um, that she had a daughter, and the daughter was because she was a baby, she was given to Lenieta's um, brother to look after, who's a village counselor back home in in Enga. So I said, but he's. I thought it was she was with her uncle, and he said, Yeah, well, he's here disturbing me in my prayer meeting, telling me that um, the daughter of the woman that we buried is being tortured. And I said, that's his daughter. And he said, well, that's how he's putting it. Uh, the daughter of the woman that we buried is being tortured right now. And it was two days. And so we didn't know whether she was alive or whether she had died. And, and how old? Was um, she was, was think? I think, five at that time. Um, so the first thing, and the, the the thing about 2017, November was that in 2017, August was the elections. So we had policemen and defense force deployed up to Anga. So the first thing I did was started calling up different people that there's, you know, we need to make check and see if there's a, there's a, the child is still alive. Um, and my friend Anton Lutz was a missionary and he had a lot of um, Lutheran missionaries up in that place, that particular place. And the funniest thing was that I had dropped him off at the airport that day and he was already on his way to Hagen and he says, he was like, why are you calling me again? I said, I need your help. I need you to go up to this place because I think this is what I'm hearing. The woman that we buried, you helped me bury. Um, the child is being tortured right now. He didn't need me to say anything. He's like, I'm on my way. He called up his pastors, those along the way. He said, look, I'm coming in now. You don't want this woman to come because if this woman comes in, she's going to come in with the full force. The army, they're going to burn down your house. They're going to do this and do that to you people. Give her to me. I'm, a, you know, I'm a white man, so I'm not going to do anything to you people. Just give her to me. On that reasoning, he went to the village. She was very badly burned. But um, they were keeping her to keep an eye on the child whom uh, they perceived she sort of, you know, bewitched or whatever it was. So there was yeah. another child in the village who got ill and they were blaming yeah. this this little girl. This this baby as well. So, like I said, she was very badly burned. He called me up and he said, I have her. And I was already on my way up to Hagen in the morning. So arrived in Hagen. We just changed over the vehicles. Godhead drove all the way to provinces to another province um, altogether. So we left Anga, we left Hagen, we left Juaka to another province. And um, at about 1 a.m. in the morning, we arrived at the emergency of that hospital. But then we'd already called ahead because we've done a few um, other rescues too. They they were able to be on standby. I'm in Kujib Na- Nazarene Hospital. It's run by uh, Nazarene doctors from America. Wonderful place. Uh, They gave us a room. They were able to treat it at night. Her body was covered in, you know, this burns just completely. And this this is a child. Um, So we stayed in the hospital for about two weeks. She had a left leg. um, I think one of her ligaments was sort of like torn. That was opened up again, patched. Uh, So about two weeks we stayed in the hospital. I couldn't go anywhere. She was, And the moment she saw me, she was like, don't leave me. And she said that in anger. So I said, I'm not going anywhere. And so we stayed and I and I told her, if you walk, we'll get on a plane and we'll get out of here. And that afternoon she walked. She looked at me and she said, I'll walk. And um, she said, now I can walk, so can we go now? And I was like, hell yeah, we're we'll getting out of here. <laughs> So two days later, we were on the plane on our way to Port Moresby. And I actually went to see the director of the Children's Welfare Services, Mr. Simon Giannis, and I said, the child that we rescued is here now. What do I do with her? And he said, um, there's no way I can. we can take her in. So could you keep her, keep her on a temporary placement until we find a
0: um,
1: home for her? And I thought, okay... I'm unmarried. Um, I've broken all the rules, lived my life the way I want to. Um, I'm 37, 38, and I have no way of looking after her and keeping her. So, of course, um, as soon as they're able to find a way to take you on board, I'll, I'll let her go. Now, six years on, they couldn't get her and we're like, you know what, bugger it all, we'll just <laughs> apply for adoption. <laughs> So she's your daughter now, you're her mother. She's mom. my daughter now, yeah. She's sassy, she's crazy.
0: So when she first came to you, Ruth, she'd been through such unimaginable trauma. What what was she like at first?
1: Um, it was a terrible first three months for us. Um, she didn't like men at all. I'd be driving, she'd be sitting in front, and we'd, you know, we'd be driving in a tinted vehicle. But she'll jump into my driver's seat as soon as you know she'd see other vehicles pull up beside us, and the man was driving and The weirdest thing was that I have five brothers, and amongst them they have twenty four sons It's a lot of men, and yes, so we're outnumbered in our family um only by numbers <laughs> and um my my nephews were amazing, my brothers were amazing they loved her uh, through i mean now she's like really spoiled um but they made sure that she knew that um nothing was ever going to happen to her but then she also i mean she's she's blessed so we were having the media conference we wanted to really bring it out there that we're having intergenerational um accusations now that are popping up so we need to make sure that justice is served so we stop this from happening to the next generation. So, we were having the media conference, and amongst the participants in the media conference was this school principal. And as soon as um, we were done with it, he approached me and said, Are you going to keep the child? And I said, I don't know. I'm not actually ideal to be a mom. Um, but I said, Right now she's with me. And he said, Okay, so while she's with you, do you want to put it through school? Because she's school age. And I was like, Yes, I would. I would definitely, and he said, he said, okay, well, we can give you a space in our school. Oh, I would love to, and but I didn't have the money. I, could, I couldn't afford 20000 a year. Um, but it's like, no, don't worry about it. We'll give you a scholarship. And so she went to school not knowing how to speak Pidgin, let alone English. But by the end of the year, she could start reading.
0: <laughs> and through your love and and the kindness of your brothers and nephews, she learned to trust again, trust the world again.
1: She started, uh, so it started off with her principal. So he's like a principal slash father. Uh, So she'd hug him and really hug him. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, okay, so she likes Pastor Matt. So that means there's hope for us. Um, So I told her one time, start praying about our dad, your dad. And she's like, no, I don't need a dad. And I said, actually, we do. I need a husband, you need a dad. Because in my mind, I was thinking, I had this amazing relationship with my father and I can't rob her off that. So if she's going to be mine, then she needs to have that. So about two or three years after she came into my life and I saw that she was not going to get out of it, I thought, okay, we might as well look for a way that um, we're going to look for Now we need a dad. Yeah, we need a dad. <laughs> so one time she came home and she said, hey, so... Um, Mr. Eric told us that we could pray and we could bring up, you know, prayer points and all that in school. So what should I pray for you about? And I said, actually, you should pray for both of us. You know, you need a dad and I need a husband. And she goes, no, we don't need one. I said, actually, we do. Now you need your own. So you got to go and pray. So she went to school and she told, I think my mom needs a husband. (laughs) So that's how it started. And then she comes, she came home and she said, yeah, I said, I told them that you needed a husband. And I said, what about you needing a dad? And she was, no, I don't need a dad, but you need a husband. Did the prayers work? It did. It did. It did for me. Um, it did a bit of work on her. We had to do a little bit of work on her. When he first came into her life, she was like, no, I don't like him. And I was like, why? And, and you know, the, the weirdest answer she gave was, he's not white. And I said, Okay, so we'll paint him. And um, she's like, mm, but Mac, my husband, is 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 amazing with her. And now they're like, they're two peas in a pod. <laughs> so they get together and I'm always the third wheel. It's so wonderful that
0: the story for your daughter has worked out the way it has, Ruth. But you must face such risks in the work that you do, how have people tried to get you to back down from supporting women accused of sorcery?
1: You know, there are court cases against me, there are threats against me. You know, I had village officers, I had community leaders, I had um, ward councillors, council presidents, you know, calling me names, telling me why am I, you know, calling On justice, Because what I was saying was that we need justice. We can't just sweep this under the carpet. You can't sweep the deaths of these women under the carpet because then the injustice is still there. Um, And and not only that, you know, I've had people inboxing me, threatening me, keep out of this, it's got nothing to do with you, Um, to the point of, and like I said, you know, cyberbullying is something that has been happening and uh, keeps happening. Have there been times when you felt physically threatened? Oh, yeah. I'm not able to travel freely now in certain provinces, especially provinces where there's one way in and one way out, or into communities and villages um, without going with the police. They're in certain areas where I, am, I know that people know me, know who I am. Um, those are the places that I am not um, safe to move around freely Uh, But the good thing is that we were able to actually work with community leaders to have a very strong backup of human rights defenders. And those are the ones that I really fully support. So I don't get down to the weeds anymore. What I do is I use the human rights defenders that uh, we've been training up. These are the ones that we empower and they're the ones that get to do the job. So I've sort of like um, lifted off from being in the weeds. So now I'm more to do with policy, I'm more to do with Working with the government being the in- interface because um, that's where I feel like my voice can be more heard and and more powerful than me being down there doing the physical rescuing. I've done that for the last six seven years. I've done that and I've, um, but then again, I've also done it to the point that now I'm putting myself at risk physically. But um, we've now have also established community-based organisation, faith-based organisations that have seen the need and are responding to it, so we're empowering them now so they could, you know, continue the work and then I can take a more um, a more coordinating approach.
0: What sort of emotional toll has this work taken on you over the years?
1: Uh, it's, um, you don't realise how much and, um, You can't deal with trauma, and you don't know how to deal with it. And it's um, from witnessing it and from even going through it, you see something and you just respond to it. You see that there's a need. For you is getting it to safety. So your body is on autopilot. Uh, You're driving and, and you know that anything can happen, but you don't give time to sort of look back and evaluate or talk to someone about what you just saw, because then you have to respond to something else again. So all that you've seen and gone through are bottled up somewhere. And over time, you realize that you become very aggressive. Um, You become toxic to family. Little things flare up. Um, it It came to a point where I think in the first two, three years, I didn't realize it. Until I, you know, I I started seeing that this was not me. And I think it was a conversation that I had with my dad. And I would never snap at my dad, and I did. And I thought, okay, so I don't recognize this person. And I think we sat and we talked, and then he was the one that suggested and said, why don't you take time out? I never would have thought of sabbaticals until he did. We talked about it, and I thought, actually, yes, I, I think I do, just to get out and, and see things differently. And I'm grateful that I've been able to do that every two years or every, just look for those short trainings that would just get me out, rethink, refocus, and um, just basically heal. Had it not been for that, I think I would have burnt out.
0: It was 10 years ago that you saw that notice in the hospital at Mount Hagen, that had such a big impact on your life in so many ways, from the work you do to the daughter that you have. If you imagine what the situation might be like for women and girls in PNG in 10 years' time in 2033, what would you hope?
1: I would love to read a book by then about how things have changed how it was a dark period that we went through and that now we have a, you know, strong rule of law and a system in place, all those to account. I would love to look back and say that um, we have a justice systems that, system that works and women are now are able to get justice, you know, at the tip of their fingers, are protected by the law for them to move freely, live freely, make choices that... Um, um, protects them uh, and not only that that safety will not be always the paramount thing on our head but you know having fun would be the the, the first thing that we would think about i would love to look back to say that wow that was a period that we went through but look now it's it's the light's getting brighter now at the end of the tunnel
0: ruth it's such an honor to meet you thank you so much for telling us your story on conversations thank you
1: for giving me the opportunity to share my story
0: Ruth Kissam was my guest today. I'm Sarah Kanoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: I'm Bobby McCumber, the host of a brand new podcast from ABC Radio Australia called Stories from the Pacific. The tradition of storytelling is such a huge part of life in the Pacific. Stories connect generations. Dad and I really had to learn. How to be father and son. Bridge political differences. Sports can be like soft diplomacy. Record histories. It's a repetitive pattern of a man marrying and divorcing and then marrying again, divorcing. And create community. There was never a moment I felt like I didn't have the support system. Stories from the Pacific draws you deep into the lives of Pacific Islanders who have seen and done amazing things. You can find Stories from the Pacific every week on your favourite podcast app or the ABC Pacific website.